Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for as there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite and the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Amen. I think it'd be wise if we did a recap. Um, Robin's done the first three. I'm doing the last one. I think that would be helpful for all of us. A recap of Ruth. Now, remember what we've been looking at. 
In Ruth and in Naomi, we find godly obedience. In chapter 1, we see Naomi, this woman who has turned away from Israel and by her own admission, away from the Lord, thus suffering the consequences of that decision. She's gone to Moab. She claims in verse 13 of chapter 1 that the Lord's hand has gone out against her because of her and her husband's decision. But we see her very much making a public stand to go back, to go back to Bethlehem is her phrase. Naomi, therefore, is someone who is returning to the Lord, having spent a long time away from seeking his care and his guidance. Then we have Ruth, a Moabitess. Her title, if you like, is a Moabite. That sticks to her like glue throughout the whole story. We are constantly reminded, therefore, that she is not of the covenant people of God. She is not from Israel. She's not even in the bloodline of Naomi, for she married into her family. Ruth, seeing her mother-in-law turning back to Bethlehem, chooses for the first time to follow her to this new land of blessing. Ruth, therefore, is someone who comes to the Lord for the first time. She is shown to be faithful to to Naomi and therefore faithful to the Lord. We read this in chapter 1, verse 16. The covenant-like words of Ruth. As she explains, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This is very covenantal in rhetoric. This is the same kind of language that God speaks over his people in the Old Testament. You will be my people and I will be your God. The Lord literally lodges or tabernacles with his people. This is Ruth then speaking covenant truth and accepting a covenant God. And as we look at these two pictures of godly obedience, we see these two women coming back to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, and we see the state that Naomi is in, made clear by the fact that she wishes to be known as Mara, bitter, because of the fact that she has returned empty. But the fact that Ruth and Naomi's story doesn't end there gives us a hint as to what kind of God we are dealing with. The story is not ended. There is more to come. God has not abandoned Naomi, despite her bitter state and her disobedience. And this is where we get the first mention of Boaz. And to cut a story short, Ruth happens to find herself in the field of Boaz, who just happens to be a family member of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, who happens, in fact, to be the kinsman redeemer of Naomi and Ruth. Here we see a divine set of normal circumstances conspired by a loving God to bring about real blessing on Ruth and Naomi. There is a redeemer, and it's Boaz. There is someone who is in the position of buying destitute Naomi and Ruth back. Naomi, the disobedient, still has a future. Ruth, the Moabitess, still has a future. And it's all wrapped up in Boaz. But before we even get to today's chapter, which is the culmination of this divinely inspired, ordained, providential journey, Ruth already finds blessing by the hand of Boaz in chapter 2, and the blessing she receives seems to be because of her obedience to the covenant God and to her mother-in-law. Read with me chapter 2, verse 10. She, um, She says this, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? That's Ruth asking Boaz that after he has invited her to pick the best of his crop, after he has promised that his men will protect her. Boaz responds, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that did not know you before. 
Then we get to the real theology of Boaz's blessing, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth and Naomi's obedience to the Lord produces real blessing. And remember what it was that Robin has been saying over the past few weeks. It is a natural outworking of God that real obedience leads to greater security in him. That's what the whole of the covenant of Israel was founded on. That if you will do my will and follow my ways, says the Lord, I will bless you. It's the very basis of the covenant of Abraham. So we should not be surprised when spiritual blessing comes about because of a person's obedience or because of a family's obedience or indeed because of a nation's obedience to a loving God. But as we move on from this in Ruth, we begin to focus more on Boaz. We see that he is a kinsman redeemer. He is the potential savior of Ruth and Naomi. But will he accept that? Will he accept that position and the responsibility Well, this is where what Robin called strategic righteousness comes into play. Naomi in chapter 3 sees an opportunity for Boaz to be their redeemer. And so she places Ruth literally at his feet, hoping that she catches his eye and he would be willing to save them through their marriage. Naomi's not being crude here. She's being wise. She's not afraid to work, to make decisions, and to put into practice something that to her is one, obvious, two, something that is not sinful, and three, something that may may produce real blessing. And all those are excellent reasons on which to make a decision about anything. And so she sends Ruth to Boaz, and Ruth as ever obeys. Ruth is a picture of constant loving obedience as she presents herself before Boaz, and the outcome any hopeless romantic in us would want to see happens. Ruth falls in love with Boaz, Boaz in love with Ruth, and all seems well. But there is, as we left off last week, a sting in the tail. There is a rival redeemer, chapter 3, verse 12, and he has the first claim on Naomi and Ruth. What is going to happen? Can Boaz bring about the result we are all hoping for? Well, just before we look at that, why don't we pray together before we start? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you for the book of Ruth. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for your goodness to us that we find in Boaz. We pray that as we look at it now, we would be both challenged and excited about the gospel and that we would want to tell others about it. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. Uh, Please follow your service sheet. You'll see the points on there. And keep your Bibles open to page 224 as we look at the passage together. Our first point, the rival. It's funny, isn't it? The idea of a happy ending. Now, let's think about that from the perspective of Disney, if you will. Uh, I adore Disney. I can sing Let It Go with the best of the five-year-olds in this congregation. And I love Disney because as I'm watching it, I know that something will always end in happily ever after. And that excites me, and it keeps me watching. And despite the peril that's woven into the storyline all the way through, I'm intrigued to see how the story will end well. And if I'm honest, I long for the story to end well. I want the guy to get the girl. We all like that. I want good to triumph and bad to fail. And that's how we feel, I think, when we read Ruth. As Vaughan Roberts says, we crave for there to be a happy ending, whatever we're reading. And so we do here with Ruth. The Bible taps into what our hearts would love to see, because it's not what we see around us in real life. So we crave for these happy endings. And Ruth is a good old-fashioned bog-standard love story, if you like, on the face of it. And we revel in that. 
But before we get to the big picture of what's going on, and before we get into the idea of what a happy ending really looks like, we have the traditional snag in our storyline, the thing that seems to get in the way of future happiness. And this is that there is a rival in the way. But panic not, Boaz is going to get it sorted. Now, let me read, let me paraphrase what's going on in Ruth 4, 1 to 7. Just, just scan along that as I go through it. Boaz goes to the gate of the town. This is where, traditionally, the elders of the town would have sat and where most business transactions would have taken place. And he sees the first redeemer of Ruth and Naomi. Again, a happenstance of God's sovereignty. Behold, there he was. And Boaz goes over to him and gathers together the elders of the city who would oversee transactions and deal with disputes. And before them all, in public, announces that Naomi has land that needs to be sold that belongs to her husband who has died. And this first redeemer has the rightful claim to buy it and have it for himself. He also makes sure everyone knows that there is a second redeemer. It's him. He's not being disingenuous. He's making clear that he also has a claim. Now, what is the reaction of the first redeemer? He's keen. He's really keen. He wants to buy it. If this were a Hollywood movie, we'd be watching this from behind the sofa. That's not meant to happen. But Boaz continues, great, says Boaz, but you need to know one thing. This redemption doesn't just involve land, but a person. Verse 5, Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, what is helpful to understand here at this point is two bits of Old Testament law. The first law is found in Leviticus 25, which says this, that if any person falls into debt or financial difficulty, they are allowed to sell their property or even themselves to their next of kin, their kinsman redeemer. It is not the state that looks after a person in difficulty. It is the closest family member. The second law is the law of leveret marriage found in Deuteronomy 15. This law says that the kinsman redeemer, when redeeming his brother's property after that brother's death, must also redeem or take his brother's widow, if he has one, into his family home to care for her and look after her. And if there are no children, then the widow must be taken as a wife so that the family line can be continued in his dead brother's name, so that the widow is protected with her own children being able to receive the inheritance of her dead husband's property. Now, that may sound incredibly odd to us in our culture, but this law was designed to protect the widow, to keep her safe with her own inheritance and her family line. Now, what that meant, and what is important for this first redeemer that Boaz is talking to, is the fact that the inheritance borne out by the children from that union between the widow and her husband's brother does not belong to the redeemer. The inheritance in its entirety goes to the widow and her sons. It does not belong to him. And herein lies the problem with the first redeemer that Boaz speaks to. Ruth is childless, and with this land, he has to redeem her as well. Now his reaction is completely different in the light of this news. Verse 6, then the redeemer said, I can't redeem this for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. He's okay with redeeming the land. That may produce profit. He's also okay with redeeming Naomi. She's too old to have children, and she may not last that much longer anyway. But he is not okay with taking childless young Ruth because under the law he knows he has to give her children who will take the entire inheritance away from him. It's also his job to keep Ruth, to sustain Ruth, feed Ruth, look after Ruth, pay Ruth's debts for as long as she lives. 
That involves time, effort, and above all, money. The cost of redemption for him was simply too great. And with this, the door is immediately open for Boaz to succeed this first redeemer and redeem Ruth himself. He's done it! But before we move on, and while we celebrate this masterful move by Boaz in removing the first redeemer out of the way, we have probably realized something for the first time. And that is, my goodness, look what Boaz is having to take on. For the first time, the reasons that lead the first redeemer to flee from Ruth become the reality and the difficulty in which Boaz is placing himself. The cost which causes the first redeemer to gawp is the cost that Boaz is willing to take on himself. You see, there is so much more here than a flimsy girl meets boy love story. This is a story of real sacrifice. And consider what the sacrifice is for Boaz. Boaz is agreeing to a lifetime of loss of profit, potentially. He's agreeing to a lifetime of repaying any debt, potentially, that Ruth and Naomi and her husband previously might have built up. Remember the first law we spoke about. He's literally buying their debt. Consider also the fact that any inheritance or financial gain that does come from this land, any assets that Ruth and Naomi do have, even if he were to get it all debt-free, doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the children he will have with Ruth and is in her first husband's name. The cost of redeeming Ruth is staggering, in fact. And we only see the cost of what Boaz is agreeing to by looking at the reasons his rival walks away. The reason Boaz mentions Ruth to this man is because Boaz knows the extraordinary cost that Ruth brings to this transaction. Boaz is potentially signing himself up for a lifetime of significant monetary loss. And this is what makes what Ruth asks of Boaz in chapter 3, as she sits at his feet in the dead of night, all the more stark. It, It is a marriage proposal, but it's more than that. Ruth is effectively saying, Boaz, you know the law of redemption... And you know the law of leveret marriage, as detailed in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, with everything that that entails... Well, I want you to fulfill both of those roles. Will you do that for me? Will you take me to be your lawful wedded wife with all this baggage? And with full knowledge of all of that, Boaz turns around and says, I will. I will. And it's the I will of the Redeemer under the understanding of the sacrifice that he is to make that we turn to next. Our second point, the Redeemer himself. Boaz wastes no time. As soon as this guy is out of the way, he doesn't ruminate on it for a few days to think it through. There and then he forces a contract. At the first opportunity, he plays his hand and takes what is now his. And as the first Redeemer hobbles off with one foot without a sandal, showing everyone publicly that he has just concluded a financial transaction, that's what that was to to provide. It was to provide a host of witnesses in case he reneged. That was the point of that transaction. Boaz launches into a speech, and the speech is remarkable. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Marlon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are all witnesses this day. If any of us were wondering whether A, Boaz knew what he was signing up for, or B, whether he'd actually go through with that, our wondering is over. 
He stands up before the people and he publicly proclaims his full responsibility under the law. He publicly makes known the cost that he has to carry in taking Ruth and Naomi. And the birthright and the inheritance, Boaz states, does not belong to him but to Marlon. That's an incredible speech. But it's also an unnecessary speech. Now, hear me out. Boaz has just taken part in a public transaction before the elders of the city. With the first redeemer, he's hobbled off as a public testament to that. Boaz has also made sure that the elders know that he fully understands the way to the law and the one who redeems Ruth. So there's no need, in fact, to re-say it all. It's all been implicitly implied by his offer to the first redeemer by this public transaction. No one's questioning what Boaz's motives are here. But Boaz stands up in front of anyone and says it anyway. It would be a bit like one of us buying a house signing all the missives, signing the mortgage certificate, and then going on the BBC News and stating boldly, I promise to pay Barclays Bank the amount owed each month in accordance with the law for which I've received in place a house under which I'm held accountable to monthly main, etc., etc., etc. It's unnecessary. The fact that I have a mortgage is proof enough that I'm bound by the law to pay. The fact that this first redeemer hobbles away from the transaction is proof enough that Boaz owns all of Ruth's debts and denies his own inheritance. But it is not enough for Boaz. This speech is so unnecessary, but it is also so very Boaz. Look at what else he has also done that is entirely unnecessary. Chapter 2, verse 15. Boaz asks the young men of his field in which Ruth is gleaning to pull out sheaves of corn and drop them in front of her. That's not necessary. The Old Testament law says nothing of deliberately dropping food for gleaners. It just says that gleaners should be allowed to glean what's left over. What Boaz does is unnecessary, but he does it anyway. He goes beyond the law. Here in chapter 4, publicly restating what has already been so obviously agreed on is not necessary. There's no comment in Leviticus or Deuteronomy that that needs to happen, but he does it anyway. Boaz goes beyond the law. And more fundamentally, even his redeeming of Ruth in the first place was unnecessary. It was not his responsibility. He did not have to do that. It was someone else's problem. But he does it anyway. Boaz goes beyond the law. You see, it's not enough for Boaz just to keep the law. For the sake of Ruth, because of his love for Ruth, because of the duty of service and sacrifice he feels for Ruth, he chooses to go beyond the law. And here in this speech, he does it again. To him, the shouting out of his public responsibility is his love song for Ruth, if you like. Very publicly, he's saying, Ruth, this is what I promise I will do for you. This, if you like, is his wedding vow. Six years ago, this very day, in about half an hour, Jen and I got married. Thank you. it's, It's been bliss. Josh and Mary are celebrating being married for a mere three days. Callum and Emma are celebrating being married for just a night. And at mine and Jen's wedding day, at the weddings this week, at Christian weddings up and down the country, across the ages, we promised things to each other. Jen and I agreed to a contract. Or less prosaically, we promised to hold each other in covenant. And those public declarations of till death do us part, the anxiousness of agreeing to love each other in sickness and health, the resounding weight of the word I will are a way in which we as Christians, husbands and wives are forced to confront the reality of what we're really signing up to by physically looking into the whites of each other's eyes and actually saying it. 
We all saw that this week with Callum and Emma and Josh and Mary. It's a profoundly weighty moment in the ceremony, isn't it? As the marriage service says, these things are not to be said lightly and without much serious thought. And today, as I think back to where Jen and I were standing six years ago to the hour, I am reminded of just what that day really meant. And this, I think, is what Baraz is doing. This is serious, Ruth, he's saying. This is just how serious I take being your redeemer. It is such an important thing that I will go beyond the law to achieve that. You see, marriage is so much more than a contract. Just as what Boaz does for Ruth in redeeming her is so much more than him just keeping the law. He is not redeeming her because he has an obligation to fulfill. He's redeeming her because he loves her. And as our wedding day vows provide us the foundation which allow us to go beyond them, which give us license, if you like, to publicly and privately show our love for our spouses in all kinds of ways that our vows don't mention, so the law allows Boaz to show his love for her as it provides a bedrock for him, a foundation for him to show his love for her in ways well beyond what is written. As is often said at Christian weddings, it is not love that maintains marriage, it is marriage and the covenant vows that maintains love. The law is Boaz's bedrock. And that will keep his ability to redeem Ruth through, as we've already seen, potentially very difficult times in the future, right the way through to the end of his or her life. His love expands out of the law to encompass Ruth. And that is exactly what the Redeemer is like. And that brings us to our last point today. The results, verses 13 to 22. Because, of course, the story of Ruth is so, so much more than marriage. And if we're not careful, we can be swept up in that and forget everything else that's going on. The big thing the Bible draws attention to here, in fact, is the results of what is achieved through Boaz and through Ruth. Through Boaz's choosing to go beyond the law, through Ruth's incredible obedience to Naomi and to her God. What has God achieved through that? A son. Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a son and he is called Obed, a source of joy and life for Naomi in particular, who up until this point has been left entirely empty. Now look at what the people cry over Naomi here in verse 14. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher for your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed is the result of blessing to Naomi and to Ruth and to Boaz because they have been faithfully obeying a living God. And look at the culmination of the book of Ruth in regards to Naomi. There's famine in chapter 1, replaced by abundance in chapter 4. There's death in chapter 1, replaced by birth in chapter 4. There's emptiness in chapter 1, replaced by fullness in chapter 4. Can you imagine what holding this little guy would have meant to Naomi? But just as the immediate blessings are clear, there are obviously so many more, because Obed is not just any son. He is a son who will give birth to a line of kings. Verse 70, Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. 
The line of kings starts off with his grandson, David, the king who will transform the pitiful, horrendous experience of judge-led Israel, the time frame within which this book sits, a time of murder and gang rape and incredible blasphemies and truly astonishing acts of violence and debauchery and idolatry, into a nation of blessing and incredible prosperity and unparalleled peace. Within this morass of filth, Ruth is obedient, Boaz is faithful, and so incredible blessing is produced. Whereas Obad is immediate blessing to the few, he, through his grandson, will become the future blessing to an entire nation. You see, as we started off today with our recap, and as Robin has been reminding us all along, there are two themes in the book of Ruth, and this is the first. That God brings about his incredible blessing through obedience and faith of normal people. But not just to those who are faithful and obedient, but to many. Because as we know, as much as David is a result of God's blessing brought about by obedience and faith, which blessed a nation, so the kingly line of David, messed up, battered, and bedeviled as it was, would go on to produce the king who would bring blessing to an entire world. The answer to the book is Jesus. Jesus is the result of Ruth's and Naomi's obedience and Boaz's faithfulness. God uses Ruth and Boaz to achieve his future purposes, and they are incredible purposes. Through them, God ordains and providentially achieves through what seems to us like mere happenstance and coincidence, an incredible union between two obedient, normal people that produce the Christ who is to be the saviour of the world. And in the light of that, our question is a simple one. Are we living in obedience and faith? It is often a question that's missed when we're looking at the book of Ruth. We spend a lot of time looking at Boaz, the Redeemer, a lot of time looking at marriage, and that's absolutely correct. But we must not miss out the fact that simple obedience brings incredible blessing to the world. Are we as Christians being obedient to a loving God, and are we blessing people through that? Now, we're not going to bring around the Christ. That, that's not what we're talking about. But we can bring Christ to people. We can bring about God's purposes for this earth through our obedience to telling the gospel people may be saved. That is literally how God saves people, through us telling the gospel. Am I being obedient to that? Am I going to bring God's blessing to others in that way? Am I being obedient to God in the help I give others, the way I serve others, the way I love my wife? What does my marriage look like? Does that provide a lifeline to someone whose marriage is struggling? Am I, through being obedient to God's word and doing what it says, bringing God's blessing to those who don't have much, or to those who are bereaved, or to those who are dying, or to a nation that is in a state of shock? The book of Ruth does have enormous truth about Christ, but it also has simple truth about us. As simple, normal, obedient people of God who go about our Father's business, and it's true that through someone being obedient to Jesus, I'm standing here before you today. Through someone being obedient to the word of God, John Piper, Don Carson, C.H. Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Thomas Chalmers, they were all saved. And an incredible blessing to more and more people was given through the grace of God. Are we being obedient like Ruth, like Naomi, like Boaz to our God? And am I willing to be used to potentially bring about God's blessing to others? But there is more to Ruth than obedience. We all know there is. Because the question is, what does the manner of this worldwide blessing look like? 
redemption. Jesus' great kingly act is to redeem. That's what blessing looks like. He is to do Jesus in gargantuan ways to the world, what Boaz did to just one person. Jesus is the greater Boaz. And so the second theme of the book of Ruth, after having seen real blessing come through real obedience and faith, we see in this book the vivid picture in the person of Boaz of just how God blesses mankind, where we see how God redeems us in Christ. I, in my state without Christ, fully recognizing where I really am, I'm just like Ruth destitute without an inheritance, godless, a Moabite, someone who is not of the covenant of God, someone who is not eligible for his blessing. As a sinner, I am someone who has chosen to flee God's rule and blessing by setting up my own rule in my own life and dethroning God. And so I leave God's country against his will for my life, just like Naomi did all the way in chapter 1. I am found to be disobedient and I suffer the consequences of his judgment. And so, like Ruth, I find myself under the first law in Leviticus. I have a debt I cannot pay, a debt that blocks me from knowing the God of heaven and earth. So I need to be bought back. My debt needs to be bought on my behalf for there to be any hope for me. And then I also find myself under the second law in Deuteronomy, where I find I have no inheritance, no future, and no life. And in both of those instances, I desperately need a kinsman redeemer. Someone who, like Boaz does to Ruth, is willing to step into my world and see my state and literally pay for my life and give me all of his inheritance. And just as Boaz does that in abundance for Ruth, so my kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, does that with even greater abundance for me. But instead of giving money and trading a sandal, he gives his blood and he trades his life. That is my Redeemer's love song. That is my Redeemer's wedding vow. That is my Redeemer's contract. Paid not with money, but with blood. Ratified not with a sandal, but with a life. Witnessed not at a city gate, but at the foot of a cross. That's what my Redeemer looks like. And the day he redeems me from the filth and morass of my judge-led life, the situation in which I find myself, is the greater day than the one I celebrated six years ago with Jen. It is my greater wedding day. And the blessings are enormous. Everything Christ has, I get. I get given robes of righteousness. I get to stand before the Father in confidence because I am declared righteous. I'm clean. As a bride of Christ, my debt has been repaid. My sin has been forgiven. I am given a new eternal inheritance of incredible riches that will never fade or spoil, and I get life. And all of us in this room who know Jesus Christ, the words the women sing over Naomi ring true for us today in an incredibly profound way. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Isn't that incredible news? The fact that the Lord this day has not left you without a redeemer. In your state as someone who is cut off from the covenant of God, ineligible to enter heaven, sinful, destitute, without inheritance, without life because of your disobedience to a good, loving, heavenly Father God, you have not been left without a redeemer. And not a redeemer who does all this quietly in contract negotiations behind the scenes. 
But like Boaz, who stands out in the public square and recites his contract with Ruth, so Jesus climbs up onto a cross to publicly recite his contract for me. Just like Boaz, who chose to do what was unnecessary by going beyond the Lord to redeem, so Jesus chooses to do what he didn't have to, but he willingly gives up his life as a ransom for many. And just like Boaz, who counts the incredible cost of redeeming and looking after Ruth, so Jesus counts the incredible cost to himself of redeeming us and looking after us. As with the question that we ask of him, as Ruth did of Boaz, will you take me to be your debt-ridden, inheritance-less, foreign-born, destitute bride? Jesus turns around and says, I will. I will. I will take you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and beyond death, which will not part us. That is our Redeemer. And the giving of his life and his blood on the cross is how he redeems. We love the book of Ruth because there is a happy ending. And it ends with a wedding, just like many of the Disney films we were talking about earlier. But whereas Disney taps into the idea that there could be happy endings, where there could maybe be a perfect marriage in our dreams, perhaps, the Bible shows us that there really is one. Why do we love happy endings? Because it's written in our DNA, steeped in us from the beginning of time, where God set out his providential, sovereign, linear, historical plan for mankind, where happenstance and coincidences and the obedience of normal people and taken opportunities were all going to stack up in perfect order and lead to a man called Jesus being born, who is going to eventually die for a lost cause, buy a bad debt, marry an unattractive bride, and redeem a destitute people. The happy ending can only be found in Christ, the hero, the greater Boaz, the true redeemer. Without without Boaz, the book of Ruth would end shockingly sadly. Without Christ, any notion of a happy ending is just a Disney pipe dream. And that sad ending is all too real for people around the globe across the ages as they choose to live life without knowing the redeemer. And for those of you today who have perhaps turned away from the Lord in recent times, you know you need to head back to him like Naomi. Well, the Redeemer is there waiting for you to welcome you back and to give you his blessing of everlasting life. For those of you who have never known him like Ruth, he is there, the Redeemer, to accept you with open arms this very day and to give you real blessing of life everlasting. And for those of us who are in the hands of our Redeemer, He is there to give us his task to which we can choose to be wholly obedient. As, like Ruth, are given the wonderful opportunity to obey his perfect law, and like Boaz, to choose to go beyond it and to be faithful to it as we seek to bring incredible blessing of true everlasting life to our families, to our marriages, to the nation and to the world, as the gospel of good, good news is preached through us, through God's incredible providence to those who need to hear it. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much that you have not left us this day without a Redeemer. Heavenly Father God, thank you that everything that needed to happen for us to be safe and saved is found in Jesus Christ. 
Lord God, as we look on the very attractive man of Boaz, we see an even greater attractive Jesus Christ. Lord God, I I pray that our hearts would not just be won over today. I pray that this would keep us going through our marriages through the years, through, through our friendships through the years, through our families through the years. Lord, that we would be blessing to people as we choose to preach this incredible gospel. And I pray for those here who don't know you. I pray that they would see that this is all true as written in your word and that you are ready, waiting to redeem. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this incredible book. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for your incredible Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.